live in a world that is facing one of its biggest challenges in living memory. The coronavirus pandemic has devastating potential as it sweeps across the globe. To fight this virus and slow its spread, we've had to change almost everything about how we live our lives. In Coronavirus Examined, we're talking to experts from the University of Sheffield to explore the different ways in which coronavirus is changing our world and the way we live. Hi there, I'm Alicia Shepherd, and welcome to Coronavirus Examined. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Megan Blake from our Department of Geography. Megan is an expert on community organisations and how they create social connections in relation to food, and in particular, surplus food redistribution. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the social challenges around food and nutrition, particularly where food banks are concerned, as well as the social side of eating, all of which have been impacted by the coronavirus. So to begin with, Megan, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your research interests? My work focuses on community resilience and the ways in which community organizations help to connect people together with each other and with the food system um, to enable them to access that system and have enough to eat, uh, particularly if they're struggled or if they're food insecure. It pays a lot of emphasis on the social economy So rather than the commercial system, it looks at the ways in which volunteering, gifting, sharing um, happens within communities in sort of a mutual support and mutual aid way. Obviously, this is something that's really important at the moment with the coronavirus crisis. There are a lot of charities and organisations up and down the country who rely on surplus food and supply chains from supermarkets in order to give to food banks and redistribute it to those in need. But with all the panic buying that's been going on over the last few weeks, is that surplus food still there? Are they still able to do that? Or are these lower income families and communities really suffering from the current situation? I've spoken to quite a number of organisations. And uh, at the same time that panic buying was going on in the supermarket, the cafes and the uh, restaurants were being shut down. And so what happened is where back of supply chain food uh, or back of store surplus food, the stuff that you get from the back of a Tesco's um, did dry up, but further back in the supply chain. uh, So producers, manufacturers and the commercial sector that focuses on um, not retail, but restaurant food completely became flooded. So they're actually the food donations have ramped up enormously Not always the right kind of food for what people are doing, um, but food has, donations of food have been incredible. So there's a lot of food in the system. It's not always the right kind of food. So sometimes, you know, for example, catering bags of of lettuce aren't necessarily great for a household because there's too much lettuce chopped up. But what we're seeing is a huge amount of innovation happening in the charity sector. So charities are taking this food, they're figuring out what they can distribute to people um, in terms of shopping, uh, boxes of pre-bagged up or pre-boxed up shopping um, versus what they can do or or use as um, things like meals. Uh, so there's a lot of cooking going along. Lots of delivery of meals is happening. You mentioned that many cafes and restaurants have shut. Obviously, this highlights a slightly different issue in terms of people losing their jobs or being furloughed and therefore having a lower income. It's obviously great to know that there is food available for people, but are more people now relying on these kinds of services because of job losses? I am seeing, I'm just looking at my notes here, I'm seeing a number of organisations say, yeah, the demand has gone up enormously. Um, 
Food Works here in Sheffield uh, reports that they've doubled the number of people getting food through their um, shopping, through their sharehouse market. Uh, we're seeing that those organizations are doing things like the social distancing that needs to happen. So they're still doing collections, having people come collect the food, but they're allowing people to collect for their household and somebody else. Um, so they can collect two or three boxes if they need to. Um, and they're also doing uh, things like deliveries. So Edlington Community Organization in Doncaster is still running its uh, pantry scheme with people coming to collect um, but they're also do, doing deliveries for the most vulnerable people in their communities. So yes, the, the demand has increased enormously, but so has the um, ways in which these organizations are meeting that demand and, and trying to deliver their food. We are probably going to, haven't seen the peak of it. Um, the news this morning indicated that more than a million people have signed up for universal credit. Um, which is the social welfare system that we currently have now. And uh, within the universal credit, they still have a five-week wait before their first payment. So as these people are signing up, they'll be going through any savings that they've got because there won't be any income coming in. Um, they can borrow against future payments, but that's borrowing and they have to pay it back. And um, that, you know, so that cuts down into future payments that they get. So the five-week wait is is likely to bite um, in the next couple of weeks, probably two or three weeks in particular. So I'm, I'm expecting, and all the food charities that I speak to are expecting that demand to increase quite significantly over the next few weeks. So that's really going to pile the pressure on for these organisations. Is there anything that those who are able to can be doing to support charities through what is probably going to be a really difficult period coming up? Absolutely. So the charities themselves um, can use volunteers. So while they're a, a social economy and they're gifting and sharing and doing things like this, they still have to pay the electric bill. They still have to put petrol in the van that's doing the delivery they still have some staff that they need to pay to coordinate all of this because that's their only job. Um, they so that so financial donations are are welcomed. Um, if there are, is industry or people with industry experience around logistics, that can be really helpful. And then of course the food industry. Um, just because there's lots of food doesn't mean that that now is the time to go away and stop donating that food. We we continue to want them to donate that food absolutely donate that food because it's we'll find a way people are finding ways of using it and of course people can donate food that won't go off like tin products right in the industry in the food industry that's called ambient food and ambient food is still the food that's of highest demand and that is absolutely what tends to go through food bank type uh, services so you go get a food parcel and that will include tinned canned packaged food that can sit on a shelf and yes that is absolutely needed um, and many of the supermarkets are creating, making it easier for people to do that sort of donation, in addition to providing an awful lot of money to help with that donation. Um, so all the major supermarkets, starting with uh, the co-op, but, but more recently Tesco, have, are giving money to uh, Fair Share, which redistributes surplus food to charity organizations across the country, but also to the Trussell Trust. Um, Fair Share and the Trussell Trust sort of cover both the um, the Trussell Trust or the Trussell Trust food banks, but there's probably at least another 
equal amount of uh, independent food banks and they can get food through organizations like Fair Share or City Harvest in London or some of the other more regional, uh, his church is another one, some of the other more regional distributors. Um, so absolutely donations of, of canned, tinned food is, is, is absolutely welcome. And also, can I just add, there's, you know, the food and the hunger is one side of this. Um, but we also, because we're all isolated now, people are lonely and people are um, feeling more cut off from their social support networks. Um, people who may have gone to the pub. I was talking to a young man who'd went, who'd gone to the pub recently, you know, that's where he got his, met up with people. And he's now at home and he has a difficult time with his family. Um, and he's, you know, he's struggling because of that. And there will be lots and lots of people like, like him, not just older people, but younger people as well. Many of these organizations that are providing food are also doing things like phone conversations. So they'll be calling up people that they know or providing a phone service for people just to call in. Many of them are doing that um, to kind of help with that isolation problem. Um, when you haven't got uh, a lot of resources, the things that kind of disappear are things that we think of as luxuries, things like the internet, which as we're seeing, internet connection and technology has become part of our infrastructure. And, and it's been particularly important and particularly needed at this time. So it's not just the, the physical well-being of people, but also it's the mental well-being of people that these community organizations are really supporting. And the volunteers are needed for that. And you can volunteer through the NHS for some of that work, but also many community organizations can help you out with lists of people and phone numbers and helping with phone lines and things like that. This is something that I wanted to discuss actually, this idea of the social side of food. I know some of these charities offer social spaces for people to come and eat together as well as the food itself. But with all of us in self-isolation, people don't have those opportunities. How do you think that might be impacting the mental well-being of people and possibly impacting people's relationships with the food itself? I can only imagine that it is, it is having an impact. There's an awful lot of traffic on social media about res with recipe sharing. There's a whole bunch of groups who have joined where people are saying, hey, you know, now might be the time to learn to make this new thing, like, um, for example, sourdough bread. Here's how to start sourdough starter. So there's a lot of these sort of um, groups of people who are sharing recipes and sharing tips and sharing how to cook new things. And I know people are trying that. Um, but also uh, there will be people who, who are just trying to cope at this time and are, have, will have stocked up on stuff that they can put in the freezer. Um, so we don't know what the outcome really is if, in terms of if they're eating better or if they're eating worse. There are a whole number of things going on around um, people eating together or socializing together. It's really interesting the way the council has gotten involved in trying to work alongside the charity sector and to support them um, with advice, with clarity around guidance and so forth to enable these sort of much more local scale organizations, which quite frankly have better existing infrastructure for accessing those who are in need. They know their neighbors, they know people. So to swoop in and have a government come in and say, we're going to connect everybody up or the NHS come in and say, let's connect everybody up may not work so well 
um, for people who are living in their homes. But but at the local community scale, there's a lot of that going on. In the, and there's ways in which these larger governmental health bodies can support and facilitate those those smaller scale you know, neighborhood groups to, to connect up. It's great that there's so much support in place for people to try and mitigate the feelings of loneliness and isolation. But do you have any advice as to what we as individuals can do if we begin to feel lonely or isolated or if we're developing a poor relationship with food as a result? I certainly would recommend the uh, hooking up with people, reaching out to people that you know. And and the the video aspect like we're doing here, the sort of, you know, meets on Google Meet or Facebook Messenger meeting up. Um, I know there's a lot of WhatsApp groups where people are just posting stuff to each other. And those have been really great and really supportive um, because you can do it as and when. But the face-to-face is really important. And I think um, encouraging people to not be afraid to try the face-to-face stuff would be worth, um, uh, worth saying and worth encouraging people to do that. It makes a difference when you can see another human being that's not you know, your cat or not your neighbor uh, across the way that you wave at, but actually finding ways of, of, of making time and making space to have conversations online through video technology with people if you can do it. Not everybody, of course, will be able to do it. Finally, if you are someone who now finds himself in a position where you might need a food bank or surplus food redistribution company, where's the best place to find that information and advice? And do you have any recommendations for people? There's community resilient networks all over and there are maps that are being provided and councils are providing signposts to those organizations, which are very small scale, um, to, to find ways of uh connecting people together and to give advice as to where to go. There are lots and lots of Facebook groups um, that that are out there that are locally based that will point you to where um, these services are. Uh, Your local community organizations are allowed to stay open for need like food bank need. So it's a case of maybe looking at some of those websites to find that. And for heaven's sake, don't, I would say to people, do not be embarrassed do not feel the stigma. Go get the support because people will treat you in a good way um, and and we all have to band together. And this is a way of 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 helping each other. And and you know, you need to people need to feel like they can go and do that. And it's not something that that they need to be embarrassed about. There are a whole host of of, of organizations out there um, that are kind of providing signposts. Uh, food networks, sustainable food cities. There's a whole bunch of those that are providing signposts to get access to to food. And actually, it's it's good food. It's not it's not just the tinned canned pasta, but it's fresh fruits and vegetables, and it's meat, and it's all sorts of you know, it's lovely food that you can make good meals out of. Um, it might take a bit of working out what to do with this new stuff that people haven't necessarily had before. Um, But the internet is also really good for that. You know, you can Google recipes on the internet to find out how to cook um, the weird fish that you got or whatever it is, or the odd vegetable that you've never seen before. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. It's been great to find out more about the impact the virus is having on those who rely on surplus food and just our relationship with food in general. Thanks for listening and hopefully you'll join us for our next episode where we'll be talking to Professor Julie Gottlieb about how coronavirus compares to other historical crises. 
Coronavirus Examined is a podcast series from the University of Sheffield. It's presented by me, Alicia Shepherd, and edited and produced by Harry Clulo and Tommy Wilson. To find out more about the University of Sheffield's research around coronavirus, head to sheffield.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash coronavirus.